from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, the future of Bible translation. Host Leith Anderson, NAE president, talks with Samuel Chang, the president and CEO of Seed Company. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Samuel Chang. Samuel is president and chief executive officer of Seed Company, a Wycliffe Bible Translators affiliate that is committed to scripture translation for people without God's word through Great Commission Partnerships. Before coming to Seed Company, Samuel served as Executive Director of the International Orality Network, was COO of Transworld Radio, and served as East Asia Area Director with Partners International. Born in Taiwan, Samuel grew up and worked in Canada. He graduated from the University of Toronto and was ordained at People's Church in Toronto. He is also a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he served on staff. Samuel has wide-ranging experience with the global church. He has traveled to over 80 countries, and really interesting is he has ministered in almost 40 of them. So thank you for joining us today, Samuel. Uh, Leith, thank you so much for inviting me um, to speak with your audience. What a privilege to be on this podcast. Well, we're just delighted to talk with you. So let's just start out at the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit about Seed Company and its unique contribution to Bible translation work. Yeah, um, you know, Seed Company started uh, back in 1993. And the unique contribution is that um, uh, we started with nationals around the world. And also uh, we brought along uh, both technology and supply chain management um, concepts and ideas. Uh, to accelerate uh, Bible translation. That's been our background. Um, ours, our founding days was in 1993 um, to accelerate Bible translation. And what's your relationship to Wycliffe? Oh, Wycliffe USA started us off. Uh, and Wycliffe really started Seed uh, Company off because they did some calculation back then. And they calculated something like, of all of the remainder languages, it was going to take about 150 years to to get all those languages, some level of scripture, so that people could hear about Christ. And they said 150 years is way too long. So uh, they commissioned a seed company uh, to see if we could accelerate um, the entire Bible translation process. So even today, uh, Wycliffe USA is our our parent company. So you talk about 150 years. You know, 150 years is a terribly long time. When you think about 2,000 years, it really isn't. And what has happened in recent generations is just it's just simply amazing. So give us an overview of the state of Bible translation today worldwide. And how many people or how many people groups uh, do not yet have the Bible in their own language? Um, Lee, that's a wonderfully large question. Allow me to uh, try to break it down in this way. Um, the state of Bible translation is something like this. There's approximately uh, 7,100 languages in the world today, of which experts are saying uh, approximately 4,000 of those languages are needing a translation. So out of the 4,000 languages that are needing a translation, approximately 
2,000 of those languages have not yet started. So in other words, there are about 2,000 languages that has translation progressing today, but there are about 2,000 languages that are uh, not yet started, don't even have a single verse of scripture in their heart language. And that's um, something that the entire Bible translation world is working on uh, even today. With respect to the population sizes of some of these uh, languages, uh, they range uh, from the, the lower than 10,000 people groups all the way up to still uh, in, the, in the millions, uh, depending on where you are in the world. So there are languages with millions of people that don't yet have the Bible. Do I, do I get that right? That's, that's correct. And, and specifically, there are also millions of people without the full Bible, meaning the Old Testament. So the, the, the challenge and the numbers are quite large and great. So explain or describe, I guess, the, the process for translating the Bible. So you start with um, a people group. They have a language that uh, is not in the Bible, maybe even not written at all. And, uh, you know, I, I know these stories. I actually know the people that have gone and give their entire lives um, in some remote place. I've actually visited some of them in these remote places. But my impression is that's changing. So what, what's it like now? I mean, how... How do they go about it, and how long does it now take? Yeah, Leith, um, you know, we honor all of the pioneer Bible translators that have gone before us, who have not only learned the local language, um, the heart language of the people, and um, uh, for a lifetime translated uh, the Holy Word of God uh, into those heart languages uh, in textual forms. Uh, today, um, uh, we work with nationals uh, right across the world who are not only indigenous to the culture, but might be very, very near to the culture where uh, those people groups are still needing um, scripture to be translated. And so working through nationals who are near the culture, uh, who are adjacent to the, to the people groups who are without scripture, uh, if they have a burden for them, we'll work with them to help to uh, begin translation, this, uh, translating scripture. Now, scripture, of course, uh, comes in textual forms, and sometimes uh, there are oral forms to be considered, as well as for sign deaf people, sign languages are visual forms, and they're video-based. Uh, so it depends on uh, which way the, the local language people group are receiving and needing the scripture will start at where they are at. Um, and a lot of times uh, today in the smaller languages, there might not even be an orthography, uh, no written languages. So we start in an oral format. So where do you start is the next question. Um, you, you know, just in English and having been a longtime pastor, I've had people that know nothing about the Bible. They have no church background. They say, well, I want to learn about it. So I'll start reading the Bible. And I usually say to them, well, you know, you probably shouldn't start in Genesis and work your way through Chronicles and Ezekiel and finally get to the New Testament. So I've usually said to people, why don't you start with Mark? Or When you go into a language and one way or another, orally or in written form or video, what comes first? And what's the sort of the order? Um, Lee, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, the, the, the short 
form of it is we start uh, from an end user point of view um, where they are at. So uh, if it's uh, um, maybe Muslim background uh, folks, we would actually think about um, some sets of stories uh, working with their understanding of their own religion and work out of the Old Testament with picking stories from there um, and then moving into the New Testament. Uh, but by and large, what we try to do is uh, see how we could get maybe at least one of the Gospels translated, uh, usually starting with the book of Luke, and we parallel that and partner uh, together with the Jesus film so that not only is it in written form, but it's also in visual format as well as in audio format uh, so that the people can engage with the scripture earlier. Now, of course, there are many, many times in these cultures um, and languages and people groups, they want to know the very, very beginning of time. And so we would go back to Genesis and then to Exodus um, and then also um, picking up further stories, either from the Gospels uh, or else from the book of uh, Acts and then translating it forward. So there is some um, portions that starts in the New Testament and portions of Old Testament are added on. And our desire is for uh, the people group who come to know the Holy Word of God, that they will want it so deeply that they would want to do the entire Bible translation for both in, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament. So as a student, for me, um, when I was spending many hours in classrooms learning Greek and Hebrew and studying the Bible, one of the frustrating things was there are Hebrew words and Greek words where there really isn't a good English word that says the same thing. And yeah. that, you must face that all the time, that there are languages that don't have our equivalent, at least in English, don't have our equivalent words for sin and God and salvation and all kinds of other things. Or the word in our language actually has a kind of a completely different idea and meaning in another person's language. How do you deal with that? Well, that's... Um that's both the art and science, but even more than that, the prayer. Um, you know, when you when you when you raise that, that is actually one of the large challenges that's faced by uh, the national Bible translators, as well sometimes um, the Bible translation consultants who are either indigenous to the culture or might be a Western individual. I could think of one language, for example, that. Um, um, in in East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, that it took them time to have a sense of the word sanctification, and that literally took um, not it wasn't even five days, five hours, not five months. It took them five years to come to a full sense to say this is the right word for this language, and with the understanding that's. Uh, this represents the idea of sanctification, we're being sanctified. So it, it's, um, it, it sometimes really does take time to discover what is the word that God has provided in that culture that is um, matching to, to uh, the original intent uh, from whether the, the Old Testament Hebrew or New Testament Greek. The challenges of this just uh, are kind of huge in my mind. Um, there's a 
couple that uh, I knew really well when I was growing up, and they went with Wycliffe and to a really remote part of the world to an island, and they were the essentially the only foreigners in the island. One of the things they quickly learned was when she told people her name, her name in their language was an obscenity. So she actually changed her name. She changed her name. She legally changed her name to something completely different so that she could communicate and, and have a relationship with, with people. So when this is done, when people make these you know, huge efforts and then you start to get the Bible or when finally um, the translation process is finished, what happens next? Well, what happens when the translator, the missionary, the, when it's done, what, what happens after that? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, you know, what you just described really just blessed my heart, even as I'm sitting here listening, because that is um, the fullness of giving the life uh, to Christ uh, in order to incarnationally reach the people. And, um, and I not only admire what the missionaries have done, but I'm also um, admiring the nationals of what they are uh, concurrently doing. And um, uh, what it is is that uh, they bring the community together. And in fact, uh, oftentimes these days, the community come together um, at the front end of Bible translation as well, um, so that they could think about what stories they could carry uh, for the sake of discipleship or evangelism, for the sake of church planting. And certainly when the fullness of the, the word of the New Testament, or even the full Bible is um, is translated, they they take um, not only portions, but large portions out to the community and talk about what uh, what God has done and who God is. Uh, it's a very, very, um, uh, it's a very moving thing for them to, to uh, sense and to hold the word of God. And so here are some things that happens. Uh, not only uh, do they hold the entire Bible when it's dedicated, but we have seen uh, over time that uh, the entire denominational communities in the whole country come together because the word of God is given to them in this community. It unites. And that through that uniting, they move out. Um, not only have we seen uh, lives transformed, communities changed, um, but also have seen that um, different uh, communities have gone on to do the translation of other languages and dialects that's near neighbor to them when they don't understand clearly what the Word of God is. So they, so, so people have actually taken the Word and become missionaries because they say they don't understand the Word of God in, uh, in our language, so we got to do it for them in and with them in their heart language. So we've seen the multiplying effect of uh, Bible translation into other languages, um, aside and alongside of uh, churches planted, evangelism and discipleship that goes on. Well, that speaks significantly both to their commitment, but also to the power of the Word of God to, to be able to accomplish that. So th there are languages that are disappearing, and I've seen statistics, I don't know, 10 languages a year or something like that, they're just gone. So hmm. that, on one hand, that creates an urgency. On the other hand, they're obviously learning some other language. Is that sufficient? What, how do you deal with that? Yeah, uh, that's a very uh, important question 
especially in light of um, urbanization that has taken place. Uh, in our family organizations, there's one organization called SIL, and SIL um, uh, is uh, recognized by the UN as key leader for um, for minority languages. Uh, they published the Ethnologue, uh, which is recognized globally. Um, they're the, uh, the holders of the uh, ISO codes for the very languages that is to be recognized as, as languages. And they see and the, the languages that are dis disappearing as, uh, as prevalent uh, and reported by social media. And, uh, and it's the interesting thing about urbanization and disappearance of languages is that uh, the younger generation, for them to migrate into the cities, they want to speak uh, the language of the city. And sometimes uh, there are translations that's already available and um, they actually learn in that. Um, and then I could think of also um, uh, in countries very specifically uh, whereby when they migrate uh, into the cities, uh, they have um, decidedly, deliberately let go of their own mother tongue in order to use the uh, the trade language or the language of the country or the language of the, the city such that uh, they become somewhat proficient in the new language and there is already scripture. Um, if you were to ask me, we would always uh, want to make certain that um, we're in the process of examining, examining uh, sociolinguistically all of the languages, all the languages that's available and, um, and asking ourselves, um, should we participate with them to translate the scripture um, and, and so that um, uh, we could uh, hold in tension the biblical commandment of um, every tribe, uh, every tongue, every nation. And so even though languages are disappearing, we're always looking at which ones might be surviving. And then as they move into the cities, we're thankful that some languages already have scripture and um, and for those who are letting go of their mother tongue, they could move uh, prayerfully and hopefully into the new languages that has the scripture. All right, you mentioned the UN. So actually my familiarity with translating you know, for other languages is, is just a Christian context. So do, do other religions do this or do totally secular people do the same thing? Or is this just a Christian monopoly here? Oh, I believe it's a it's, it's a Christian monopoly. Um, I, the reason I mentioned the SIO and, and the UN is that SIO is just so good uh, with uh, their research, with their academic affairs. That um, uh, and uh, SIO being a uh, non-governmental agency, yet fully interested um, in Bible translation as part of the. Uh, the family organizations that uh, Wycliffe and C Company and others are in um, would always speak up on behalf of the minority languages. And um, because of the representation of the minority languages, the UN has recognized them as uh, the authority of which um, to um, work through what is recognized as languages and dialects. One of the fascinating things is the way some languages are either uh, reduced significantly or disappear, and then a future generation decides they're interested in that language. I mean, the, the 
big example is Hebrew in Israel, but in Native American languages, there's a growing interest in relearning a language that a previous generation spoke. So if mm-hmm. let, let's just suppose a situation where the Bible has been translated and then people kind of don't use that language anymore. Might they come back to it? And if they do, how does Bible translation preserve an otherwise endangered language? Um, yeah, so the Bible translation, um, firstly, does preserve a language. And, um, um, you know, I, when I think about Exodus and the way that God told Moses, write this down, you know, they've been operating in an oral manner all that time and then to be written down. So uh, in that preservation, now with the digital age, uh, we're able to preserve it by both audio digital form and also textual form. That does preservation. But, you know, it's interesting. There are um, groups of people and languages and um, and certainly uh, in America of which uh, certain translations have been done. A generation have walked away from it. And then now all of a sudden there's a resurgence and they want to come back and um, and look at uh, what they had walked away from and want to reclaim it. Probably the, uh, there are two starting points and they work in conjunction. One is to take a look at the previous translation, uh, whether parts of it could move forward. And, um, and certainly the other part in conjunction with that is how much have language changed? A language, cha- language changes every day. And certainly in a generation, language changed a lot, even in terms of its usage and meaning. And so probably looking at what was done, see if any of it could carry forward. And the other part is to look at, okay, let's see if it's a brand new translation process. Let's work with the dynamics of the translation for the current generation and start something new. Um, My gut tells me that um, if people want to have their language retranslated, it would be better off to start with uh, the new generation because they're the ones who are wanting it and who are wanting it uh, deeply. And they're the ones who can sustain that translation process going forward into the future towards completion. All right. You mentioned oral traditions. One of the things that in America, because we're a highly literate society, we forget that most people in most of history have not been literate and a significant percentage of people around the world today don't read and write. And you come from that background. So talk about orality. What does that mean? Let's assume nobody's ever heard of this before. Uh, Tell us about it. And then I'm particularly interested in your background and how that comes into the seed company and whether that's influencing the direction that you give to the seed company. Um, Lise, um, thank you for uh, for asking that. Um, firstly, um, orality is um, uh, the state of um, being not only spoken by hearing, and, and um, it's purely in how people speak and how people hear. And um, around the world, there is approximately 5.7 billion people who are oral learners. And some of them are actually highly textual, but they prefer to learn in oral uh, means. And so that population size is quite large. Um, 
How I came into it was, was really actually quite interesting. Um, I remember it was 2004. We were in um, the Luzon Forum in Pattaya, Thailand. And, um, and it was there that um, the full recognition of the International Orality Network was given. Um, people recognize that there are people in this world whom we cannot reach purely by text. What are we going to do in order to reach them? So that was the birthing ground of what came. My personal interest uh, in this was um, when I joined that bandwagon, I saw it as a means to change every single industry either in the evangelical world, uh, simply because we've been so textually driven for the last uh, 500 years. We have forgotten how people actually learn and express themselves, especially uh, in the marketplace. And so uh, as, I, as I looked at that back in 2004 and 2005, I said, I could give my life to this. I could join this. I could see how this could change how we uh, go about um, representing Christ and to incarnationally describe our faith. And I could see how a relative could work. Um, and to, to the question that you were asking about um, uh, whether I have led a C company and work about um, uh, orality and, and changed the organization, uh, or at least lead the organization in certain, certainly in this direction, um, I have a big smile on my face in, in that um, um, most of the Bible translation organizations are highly textual. And um, it has taken time even for um, C Company to grapple with and come to a decision point about um, um, orality and oral Bible translation. Um, so, and, and I provide a type of leadership which I prefer to facilitate and help others to, um, to come to their own uh, decision. And so I'm so tickled that uh, there are leaders here in C Company um, who have um, uh, functionally taken on uh, oral Bible translation, and that's a, a part of our ministry program now. I'm tickled for that. As for me personally, um, I've been so privileged to be invited by um, others who are not in C Company, but in um, the theological education places um, around the world to, um, to help to speak into or help to de design um, some courses in orality so that um, it would be uh, used effectively uh, in the various countries and people groups that um, use oral means uh, of learning rather than the textual means of learning. I, I just had something run through my mind as you're talking. One of the things you mentioned was that uh, that there's some people who are are literate, but that they prefer to learn and communicate orally, so th they can do both. I have a friend who is a world-renowned scientist. He, he said one day um, that he thinks in Celsius, but he feels in Fahrenheit. And that's sort of what you've described. So someone may be able to read the text, but that's not the way they they feel. That's not their heart. That's you know. I, I just love what you said. Hey, let's let's talk about partnerships. So on your webpage, uh, one of the the first lines you have is that you're working with over 1,400 global partners. So I, I don't fully understand how there are 1,400, and I want to know how that works. 
So does everybody coordinate or are you in competition with each other? And how do you even know who 1400 are, much less partner with them? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very important question. It, it, it's um, right into the, our deep, deep core values of, how, of what we practice. Um, if I could uh, draw the picture in this way. In a Bible translation world, there are approximately 300 different organizations and entities. Those 300 organizations and entities fall into two large families. One is United Bible Societies, and the other, the other family is the Wycliffe family of organizations. And, um, and yes, there's collaboration, um, uh, col uh, collaboration, cooperation, partnering there, and, and we're very, very thankful for all the partnerships there. Um, however, we also practice uh, partnerships, especially with people who are doing church planting, people who are doing community development, people who are doing discipleship and evangelism. And the reason that we do that is um, our, our desire is to work with the most local expression of the church possible so that we could sense that if we could pray and sense if God is working there already, we want to be at where God is working. And oftentimes it's the church planters who are there. And oftentimes it's community development groups who are there, um, or even um, trafficking groups who are there. So we, we're looking at what are some places where God has placed uh, a burden upon the people, the group, the church, to reach out to the unreached people groups. And so over the years, um, our partnership uh, with different groupings around the world developed and, and um, we're thankful we're part of uh, a network of partners of over 1,400 partnerships uh, that's carried out for the sake of Bible translation across the world. Um, yeah, and that's something I, I smile and I get excited about. If... Um if somebody says, I really, I'm interested in this. I really care. What do, you, what do you need the most? Do you need translators? Do you need IT people? Do you need money? Do you need, what, what, what could somebody do that really care? They, they, somebody who's prayed about this, but wants to do something that's action. Well, where's the need? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm going to describe three, if that's okay. Um, I would say first is uh, we, desire we desire to have people who are going to pray with every language. So one of the things that C Company does is that for every single language that comes on the screen uh, for translation, there, there will be 10 people praying around that project already. And we're always looking for uh, people who are going to be praying for every single one, uh, one of these languages. And by the way, this decade is the first time um, in our history, meaning human history, that we actually know every language name, where they are located, and who are the people groups that speaks that language. And so we're looking uh, for all the people who will be willing to stand in the gap and pray fervently for every single one of those languages on the remainder list for Bible translation. That's first. Uh, second is that we're always looking for a greater number of Bible translation consultants, um, people who have, um, like like you, um, uh, Hebrew and Greek in their background, um, and have a desire to see quality 
scriptures come alive in the language of the people. And we're always looking for Bible translation consultants uh, around the world. Um, and then thirdly is that um, uh, we will love uh, to be always introduced to uh, some of the most difficult places where uh, those remainder languages are. Uh, there is a list and um, uh, and it's it's um, we're always looking for introductions to see is God working there and um, and are there people or a man of peace, women of peace that we could be in touch with and we're always looking for those connections uh, and so ministries that are either doing church planting all the way over to community development we will love to be part of that so that we could um, um, move together to bring uh, along with the indigenous nationals, scripture in the heart languages of the people. Will we ever get done? Will, will this project be finished? Will everybody have the Bible in their language? I, um, I, I, my heart's desire is that the fullness of God's word would be available in every language. I think our starting point is to see that of the remainder languages, uh, prayerfully by 2025, all of those remainder languages, which is approximately 2,000, um, would have uh, some level of scripture to start. Um, and then my heart's desire is that um, the fullness of the entire council of the Word of God will be available in each one of those languages. And then, of course, to your question, will we ever get done? I think every new generation uh, would want to and desire for um, the scripture uh, that would be uh, spoken into for that generation. And there may, there may need to be revisions along the way. Uh, but the starting point is to say these 2,000 languages, that doesn't have a single verse. Let's see if we could um, get some heart language verses translated so that they know what the gospel is. They know who God is. Um, and we're willing by 2025. And then soon after that, hopefully that they will run towards uh, the fullness of the entire Bible to be published. When reporters are trained in a journalism class or journalism school, they teach them at the end of an interview to say, uh, what else should I have asked you? Or what else would you like to say? So. Uh, how about that for a final question? It could be anything, uh, something you're excited about or a story you've got to tell. Um, what else is there? Oh, uh, two things. One is that um, um, God has allowed Seed Company to be involved in very specifically artificial intelligence and convolutional neural networks to bring that about for um, visual uh, sign deaf languages initially, and then we're going to extend it out to oral and textual. Um, that is something I'm very excited about, and um, uh, it, it's something that, that literally God has done, and we're looking to see how we could uh, implement that um, with uh, quality assurance in place so that uh, sign deaf uh, people, there's 70 million of them with 350 languages across the world, could receive the scripture earlier and sooner. Even today, there's not a single uh, full Bible translated for the sign deaf yet. Uh, American Sign Language is 
probably going to be the, uh, the only one, the first one uh, that will come online uh, in 2020. And so we desire to see how signed deaf people um, could be um, ministered uh, to and with with um, languages, sign, visual sign languages in their heart language using uh, very advanced technology. That's one. The second thing that's that, that I'm really, really excited about is it's the time of this decade in which we're seeing the collaboration of the Bible translation movement right across uh, the world. And that collaboration is um, so significant that, um, uh, that some people have known about it, most people do not. But to see um, 10 organizations coming together along with resource partners every single month uh, to meet together for four hours that is very significant, and that collaboration is extremely important because uh, the Word of God asks us to work in unity to represent Him, and the unity that is there to collaborate together uh, for every tribe, every nation is um, something so significant that uh, I'm very excited about that. Our guest on today's conversation has been Samuel Chang, President and CEO of Seed Company. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Samuel. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.